0: Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to be back. Uh, sad to miss last week. It was sick, and it was not COVID. I always have to give that disclaimer, and you when know, it's not COVID, no one really feels all that bad for you anyway, so, um, <clears throat> oh, it's no big deal then. Why weren't you here? <laughs> I have to be reminded, those other sicknesses still exist, and uh, the only difference is no one feels bad for you when you have them. But uh, glad to be back. It it feels like uh, with the holiday and the irregular week and then missing a week, it it feels like I was in a daze for a little bit and then boom, all of a sudden, here we are in December. And 2023 is nearly upon us. So this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, continuing to follow the Apostle Paul. In uh, the modern world that we live in today, the idea that life should be ordered on the teaching of scripture is really kind of a silly one to a lot of people. Uh, People make a mockery of so many things that are found in scripture. There's one uh, interesting thing I saw in the bookstore once where it's this guy who said, oh, I'm going to spend the next hundred days following everything that the Bible says to the T. And he ends up, of course, misunderstanding all kinds of things and uh, following Jewish dietary law and uh, just gets himself into all kinds of interesting situations. And the whole point of it is basically to say, uh, see how silly all of this is. Can you believe there are people who actually believe this and actually think it has anything that applies to the world today? You know, everyone says nice things about Jesus, of course. Oh yes, we all love Jesus. And everyone says things about loving your neighbor. Oh yes, of course we got to love our neighbor. We all know the golden rule. Don't you listen to what Jesus says? But then when you start asking those deeper questions like, okay, who is Jesus, or what does it mean to love my neighbor, that's when you're starting to get out of line. Uh, The Bible, we can't go to the Bible to get answers to some of these questions. In our modern society, belief in God and in his word is seen as uh, quite quaint. Um, But the belief that God's word should play a part in public life, uh, when you start proclaiming things like that, well, that is seen as very dangerous By the world around us. After all, we know the Bible is not actually true. We know this because of the modern advances that we have in science and psychology and history. We know that's just a whole bunch of fairy tales that a bunch of uh, strange people believed and doesn't actually have bearing on the modern life. It was good for them back then when they were stuck in their ignorance, but now that we've become enlightened. Uh, we have much uh, better sources of knowledge that we can go to. We can't tell people to live according to the Bible. Uh, Another reason we can't do this is because not everyone believes the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible is true, then why should you have to follow what the Bible has to say? This is especially true when it comes to other religious expressions. When you're telling people that, hey, you need to follow what the Bible teaches... You are discrediting, you are illegitimizing all these other religious expressions that are in the world. Don't you know that you need to coexist? Haven't you read the bumper sticker, you bigot? (laughs) Don't you know the only people you're allowed to discriminate against are Bible-believing Christians, and we need to leave the rest Uh, to live the way that they want. Well, that's the world that we live in today. And the world that we live in today really isn't entirely different from the world that the Apostle Paul lived in. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen and he spent a great amount of his missionary work going out into the unbelieving Roman world. And that is where we find him here in Acts chapter 17. So we're going to read starting in verse 16 uh, through the end of the chapter. I'll pray and we'll get into the message. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him, and he was observing the city was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we, are also, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the account that is recorded here of the Apostle Paul taking the gospel to a world that does not know you. I pray that as we look at the example of Paul, that we too would have a boldness in taking the gospel out to the world and proclaiming the truth of your Son, And we pray that you would bless us in this endeavor. We ask that you bless this time of reading your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we catch up to the Apostle Paul, and he is in Athens. This is uh, very shortly after he had to flee from Berea. We remember that he was separated from Silas and Timothy and went to Athens on his own, and he's sitting, he's at Athens, and he is waiting, and as he is at Athens, he probably went in on a tour to uh, take in all the sites. Now, Athens was a very prominent city that day. Uh, for 500 years, in fact, Athens was perhaps the most prominent city in the land of Greece. It was one of the free cities of the Roman Empire, and It was known for its tremendous military victories and it was also known for being a highly successful democracy at that time. In fact, one of the first democracies that the world had ever seen. Athens was also an intellectual hub. This city was one that was influenced by many of the great minds, uh, people that we even know of, uh, men like Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. It could be thought of as the Oxford of the ancient world. That is what uh, came to the people's minds when they heard of Athens. So a great city with great human achievement, but it was also a city that was filled with idols. With great zeal of philosophy, there was also a great zeal for religion. The, area, the, the Acropolis, which was the citadel of the, citadel of the city, could be seen for miles and miles around and it was dedicated to the glory of the Greek gods. The entire pantheon was there for men to behold and worship. There was a massive statue of Athena, after whom the city was named, that it was so huge that some say that even the, that the tip of her spear could be seen for from over 40 miles away. Now that's incredible to, to think about, a massive massive structure in the ancient world. The entire city was filled with idols and monuments to every god imaginable. The streets were covered in them. In fact, there's one uh, Roman writer who even said that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. There's no exaggeration. Uh, I think there's one uh, number I read somewhere where uh, a guy said that there were about thirty thousand different idols in Athens to a population of only about ten thousand people. So, yeah, he wasn't exaggerating when he said it was easier to find a god than a man. And this is where the apostle Paul finds himself. So Paul is in this great city of Athens. And uh, we have to, how do, you, how do you usually feel when you come to a new place, uh, especially a place like a, a big city? Uh, we typically have a, a sense of awe, don't we? It would, have been very, it would have been very easy to have this sense of awe upon coming to Athens, seeing all these massive structures, all these great monuments to, uh, basically, to the ingenuity and creativity of mankind. Uh, it's easy to feel that way. And um, that's, that's just part of our, our human nature, it seems like. That's probably how Martin Luther felt when he first visited Rome in 1510. When Luther first arrived at Rome, the great holy city, he was rejoicing because of all the amazing things uh, that were soon to be found there. But upon entering the city, he began to get very disillusioned. There were Uh, Sure, they didn't have the gods the way that they did, but there were all kinds of different icons and statues of saints, and in fact, all kinds of different uh, relics said to be relics of saints. And uh, upon seeing all this and seeing the massive trade that revolved around them, Luther eventually became a little bit disillusioned at all the false worship that was taking place. Well, the Apostle Paul was more than just disillusioned. He was never illusion. Uh, alluded to begin with. We read that when the Apostle Paul was waiting in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he was observing the city filled with idols. He was provoked, and that word can be translated as distressed, or he reviled at the idols. Rather than being impressed with the fascinating art and the structures around him and the incredible human achievement they represented, the Apostle Paul was vexed and disgusted at the rebellion against God that they represented. Paul saw a city, and when Paul saw this city, he did not see a great monument of mankind. He saw a great monument of sin. And the idea that Luke may be trying to get across is that the Apostle Paul has the very exact same reaction that God has towards idolatry. There's a number of places in Scripture where that very word, vexed, is used to describe God's reaction towards idols. Um <clears throat> We have an idea of God's attitude towards this uh, from Isaiah chapter 65. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. God says that I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A people continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. So what does God say? My people continually provoke me through their idolatry. Similarly in Deuteronomy where God is recounting the grave sin of Israel in constructing the golden calf, he says this, remember do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord. Idols provoke God. And the apostle Paul is provoked For the very same reason that God is provoked, because that which is due to God alone is offered to something that is created. God is a jealous God. God abhors idols. As those who worship God, we should feel similarly vexed when we see such blatant and open sin as idolatry, as the worship of the creation. And as we grow in the Lord, a natural revulsion towards sin should grow in us. And that's exactly what we see in the Apostle Paul. The things that upset the Lord, the things that provoke the Lord also provoke Paul. And this was really challenging for me as I read it. Because what do we see here? We see Paul provoked, and we see him immediately taking action as a result. When I look at the world around me, I can very easily be frustrated by a lot of the things that I see, but typically I think we've learned to be content in just sitting by and uh, living, living and letting live, right? Uh, I think we have this attitude in our minds that, well, it's there. Uh, better just get used to it because that's the world around us. I think a lot of the time we may feel like uh, an Apostle Paul. Oh, I see all the bad things around me, but in reality, we can be more like Lot, who is in a city, he's in the city of Sodom, and sees the grave sin, and yeah, sure, he doesn't like it. Yeah, he knows it's wrong, but really, there isn't all that much that he does about it, and when pressed, it seems he's almost apologetic uh, in denouncing that sin. In I can't speak for anyone but myself, but uh, I can see a lot more of that attitude in me than there is Paul. It's easy for me to see the world and say rah rah and get myself all upset, but if I don't do anything about it, then what's the point? Anyway, getting back to the Apostle Paul, uh, now that my toes are sufficiently stepped on and uh, maybe yours are hurting a little bit as well, we see how Paul responds when he sees this blatant idolatry around him. What does he do? Well, he goes out and does what we know him to do. He goes out and he preaches the gospel. We see that uh, as a result of this, he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So we're known for this, reasoning in the synagogue. That's what Paul does. What's the very first thing that he does whenever he gets to a new city? Well, he finds the synagogue because that's the perfect place to proclaim the gospel. And he's preaching the gospel to the Jews, to the God-fearers, those Gentiles who worship the God of Israel, but we also see that he also goes to the market. And uh, he goes to the market every day, and he reasons with anyone who happened to be present. And that's also a little bit challenging for us, right? Uh, there are places in society that are designated for religious talk. Isn't that right? Uh, in your church, right? That's obviously a place designated for religious talk, perhaps in your home, if there is permission, uh, in different homes, if there is permission from the homeowner. But we also know in our society that, oh, there are places that you just don't talk about that, because uh, you don't go to the grocery store to talk about God. You go to the grocery store to get groceries. Don't bring that on people. Don't ruin their day by challenging them with these different things. Well, that's not how the Apostle Paul operated, is it? Uh, Paul took very seriously what Jesus said about all authority in heaven and earth belonging to him. So to the Apostle Paul, there was no space that was a God-free zone, and he operated in that very way. He went to the marketplace speaking with anyone who is there, anyone who is willing to listen. And we think, oh... That must have been pretty embarrassing for the Apostle Paul. How, how many of you have ever passed by a street preacher or something like that, and he's out there, and there's just no one? It seems like that message isn't getting across to anyone, and, and we almost feel like, uh, don't associate me with that guy. I, I stay in my lane as a Christian. I know we're, we're supposed to talk about that, and that's church. We, that's almost how we feel. Uh, right? But uh, what's the Apostle Paul do? Well, he recognizes that this world belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, that all authority in heaven and earth belong to him. So even in the places that you're not supposed to talk about it, Paul was there talking with anyone who is willing to listen to him. He's in the marketplace arguing and discussing and explaining the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this invoked a, uh, a range of responses. So it, it also, uh, and also some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So uh, just a, a quick minute to talk about the, these different groups. So we know, we at least have some idea of what the paganism of Rome looked like back then, right? We see plenty of that in Athens with all the different idols. is a pantheon of gods, each of these gods representing different things. Well, uh, these uh, philosophies, the Uh, uh, the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics, these were uh, maybe a little bit new. These weren't your average paganism, right? These guys guys weren't running around offering sacrifices to every last god. Rather, uh, they were a little bit more sophisticated than that. These were the more learned men of the day who knew that uh, things weren't quite as simple as these helpless peasants uh, thought them to be. The Epicureans, uh, for example, these are people who, in reality, were indifferent to the gods. They certainly believed that there, was, uh, there were supernatural beings, but they didn't think they had anything to do with the world today. So yeah, sure, there's a god, sure, there uh, is, is a divine presence, but he really doesn't have anything to do with what's going on here, right? These people were essentially materialists, uh, which describes a lot of the world today. People who say that uh, the only thing that really exists is the things that we see around us, the things that we can touch. There's, no, there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing outside of that. And these guys weren't quite atheists. They were willing to acknowledge that, oh yeah, sure, there's got to be something, but it really doesn't have anything to do with uh, where we're at today. Have you ever heard of uh, deism? Many of our our founders were deists, right? And the idea of deism is that God basically just set up the universe, kind of like setting up a clock, wound it up, and then stepped back and and let it go, right? So God exists. He made things to work in a certain way, but he's really not at all involved. He leaves the rest up to us. That's kind of how these Epicureans felt about God. They rejected the idea that there was an afterlife and this life is all you get, uh, and therefore, as a result, uh, there were people who believed that pleasure was the chief good in life. If this life is all you get, then squeeze as much pleasure out of it as you can. That's how they lived. Now, they didn't completely abandon themselves to uh, pleasure as as many do to that today, but they believed uh, in striking a balance between the pleasures of life and pain. And that's where you're going to find the most satisfaction. Right? If you have everything handed to you and all your pleasures taken care of, that leads to a boring, that leads to a dull life. And we can see that. Many people try to do that, and they're usually pretty miserable people. Well, the Epicureans didn't want to be miserable, so they said, we need to strike a balance. Uh, a summary of their worldview is this. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, Good can be attained, and evil can be endured. So, uh, perhaps a novel philosophy in that day, but that's certainly something that we see a lot in the world. The Stoics, on the other hand, were a little bit of the opposite of the Epicureans. So, while the Epicureans believed that God really had nothing to do with creation, the Stoics were pantheists. And a pantheist is someone who believes that everything around us is God, Right? Uh, I am part of the divine being. You are part of the divine being. The world is God. All of creation makes up God. So that's what pantheism is. They viewed that everything was part of the divine being, which they called the world soul. The Stoics, uh, for them, happiness was achieved by not being controlled by their desires. So, the The philosophy of uh, the Stoics is that bad things happened, uh, and there's nothing you could do about it. But there is something you can do about your attitude when those bad things happen. So their whole uh, thrust was, okay, let's go through the bad things, but keep a good attitude while we're at it, right? And we, we still use that word today, stoic, right? When, when someone is able to endure great hardships, we'll say, that, oh, that, that person was very stoic. And, you know, you can typically uh, describe a, a favorable characteristic of someone. But that was their uh, philosophy, rather than trying to avoid bad things happening to them like the Epicureans might, they said, you know what, they're going to happen either way, but by golly, I'm going to have a good attitude while we're at it. And that is where satisfaction in life comes from. So these are the two competing philosophies uh, in Athens of that day. And these are the people who debated back and forth with one another. And, And here's the Apostle Paul, and they're listening to these strange new teachings that... This guy is proclaiming, and some of them were saying, "What would this idle babbler wish to say?" So there's a there's a mixed uh, reaction from the audience, and uh, this reaction, uh, th- this first reaction, is uh, basically the, the they're basically asking the question, uh, "Who does this guy? <laughs> what does this does this guy even have any clue what he's talking about? What does this idle babbler?" Wish to say. And the literal words behind that are, What does the seed picker wish to say? And I, th- I just thought seed picker was kind of a funny thing. Uh, a seed picker, right? Like a bird, they go out and pick up seeds from wherever they are. And in their mind, a seed picker was someone who went around hearing all kinds of ideas that weren't their own and then started repeating them. This was a guy who didn't have a single original thought in his head. He just listened to what other people say and tried to string it together and make himself sound smart. So in saying this, they're saying, what does this ignoramus think he has to tell us? Um, But uh, others uh, had a little bit of a more curious reaction. Uh, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, and they say this because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So, oh, these are gods that we haven't heard about. And that word resurrection, uh, anas- uh, anastasis, right? They may have viewed resurrection literally as a deity, because remember what the Greeks do. They take pretty much anything that has to do with anything and turn it into a god, right? Death is a god. The grave is a god. So, oh, he's talking about anastasis. This must be a new, these must be new gods, this Jesus and anastasis. So, let's hear what this guy has to say. I haven't quite heard of this one uh, just yet. So, they take the Apostle Paul, and in verse 22, we read that the Apostle Paul stood in the midst uh, uh, of the Areopagus. And this is where he begins to speak. So <clears throat> the Areopagus, uh, or Mars Hill, as we know it, right, comes from Are- Are- Areopagus, right? Ares is Mars, the uh, uh, Ares is the Greek god of war. And what the, what the Romans did is they basically, imp- they basically imported all the Greek religions and changed the names, right? So Zeus is Jupiter, Mar- uh, uh, Ares is Mars, uh, Aphrodite is Venus. They basically just gave them all names and then we named our planets after them. But <clears throat> uh, so that's where, that's where Mars Hill comes from. He's taken to the Hill of Ares, the Areopagus. Mars Hill, so that he can present his case before the council. And this council, uh, it had a formal function in the city life of uh, trying different cases. They, they were the ones who were in charge of public religion. They were the ones in charge of education and morality. And, and they were the ones who handled uh, foreign religious practice when it came along. Because remember, the Roman society Uh, It it was held together by uh, common religious ideas, and you wouldn't want any religious ideas that are contrary to that that would dissolve society. So Paul is brought before this council at the Areopagus, and it's likely that he wasn't being tried or anything like that, And, and verse 21 tells us that the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend all their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So they basically thought, ha, this is new. Uh, This guy comes from out of town. It doesn't sound like he's talking about the usual nonsense. So let's hear what he has to say. So Paul is brought before the Areopagus to speak. (coughs) Excuse me. should have covered that thing up. All right. So we get to uh, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said to the men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. So, Paul gets into his sermon, and we probably won't be able to get all the way through it this morning, but something I want to point out is that his message has the classic structure of a sermon, right? You can always tell when someone does a decent job in his message when he begins with his introduction, you know, something that grabs the audience. They've got three or four main points, and then you got a conclusion with application, right? That's how they teach you to do it in seminary and whatnot, and Uh, So, uh, and the Apostle Paul's message has a very similar structure to that. He begins with an introduction that grabs hold of the minds of his audience, that grabs the attention of his audience. And he starts off by talking about how religious they are. Uh, Paul acknowledges how religious the Athenians are. Uh, really are. And uh, here, Paul is really just trying to find a a point of contact from which he can engage in discussion with religion. And this point of contact is zeal and worship and and, uh, religion and things like that. And although uh, although they do not know God and do not worship him rightly. So, (coughs) uh, something we need to be careful of as we, we look at this is, Paul is not commending the Athenians for this, right? Uh, some, like, some like to say that, oh, Paul is trying to uh, boost their ego. Paul, Paul is actually saying that's a very good thing, what they're doing, being very religious. And isn't that the idea of uh, so many people today? Well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you believe it ser- sincerely, and as long as it makes you a better person, and as long as you don't think that I need to believe it too. Uh, they usually keep that part silent, but that's usually how... Uh, people view religion. Well, the Apostle Paul, remember his attitude going into this. He was vexed by what he had seen. He was vexed by the blatant idolatry that uh, these people were practicing in. So, uh, Paul here is not saying that any expression of religion is a positive expression of religion because that's simply not true. The reality is, is that God does not accept the worship of false religions. And he also does not accept worship that is directed in him in an improper way. Uh, Later on, the Apostle Paul will describe how religion, the religions of man, is the result of the rejection of God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, the Apostle Paul says this For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. So, what the Apostle Paul teaches is that the religions of the world, the religious expressions of mankind, are not sincere attempts at reaching the one true God. Rather, They are forms of rebellion against God. God is not neutral towards other religions. And again, that's not a uh, politically correct thing in our world to say. Uh, People really don't like it when you take one religion and promote it above another religion. In fact, I remember a few years ago, there was uh, some Senate hearing, some way, shape, or form of that, where some guys being... Uh, questioned on whether or not he should have uh, some position in the government. And one of the things that the questioner really started to nail down on this guy, and this guy was a Christian. He used to uh, uh, have some position in a Christian college, and of course would write about uh, other religions. And in one of his writings, he talked about how Jews and Muslims, unless they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, stand condemned before God, right? And that shouldn't Offend anyone, right? That's simply what the Bible teaches. But in this hearing, he's being hammered in on that. Uh, and the guy's basically telling him, Now, what makes you think you're going to be able to uh, run this job if you think that, this, uh, that these people are all condemned? How dare you? What, a, what an unjust, unright thing to say, right? Uh, the world uh, does not like that idea that not all religions are equal. Because guess what? Uh, in our secular world, the reason they push so much of that, they say all religions are uh, equal because basically the silent part is because all religions are equally untrue. right? Isn't that how we operate in the world? Uh, isn't that how so many people view religions? It eh, doesn't really matter what you believe because it doesn't actually exist anyway. We all know how the world actually works. We all know that we actually are just the result of random chance and we just so happen to make it uh, get to where we are and we just so happen to become conscious, whatever that means, as a result of. Uh, random mutation, and chance, and whatnot, and we all know that we're actually not going to go anywhere when we die. Uh, we know that we actually only have uh, about another uh, 100 million years on this planet before our sun explodes, and then it all disappears, and it all meant nothing anyway, right? That's, that's how people treat, and that's really, uh, from the time you get to school onward, that's what's pressed into your head. So none of this stuff actually matters. Therefore, be nice to everyone because we know none of it is real. But that's not how God uh, acts. The the Bible teaches us a a completely different reality, a reality that is created by God. Uh, he uh, he, He teaches us about human beings, how we are created in his image for the purpose of knowing him and worshiping him. But what does mankind do? What does the Apostle Paul say say that mankind does? In their rebellion, we take which is known about God and uh, we trade that for a lie. Rather than worshiping the God who created everything, we worship the gods that we create ourselves out of creation. Uh, We do not honor God. We do not give thanks to God and we become futile in our speculations and the result is every single uh, false expression of worship to God that exists in the world today, every single false religion that is out there today. So the Apostle Paul, uh, in saying this, is not taking a neutral stance towards the beliefs of the Athenians. Uh, he, he's using it as a, a way to get into this, the discussion. But it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, he talks about their them being religious in all uh, all respects, but then he highlights something about even their own religion. He says that while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. So, the Apostle Paul, he's getting his hooks into the audience, he's getting their attention. And then he points to something even in their very city, an idol to an unknown God. And it's, it's interesting how just about every single religion will have its logical flaws that Christians will be able to grab hold of. It's like, it's almost as if, uh, it, it, it's kind of like the Death Star. You know how the Death Star had built into it a port where you could shoot the bomb and it'll immediately blow the whole thing up. Well, every single religion has one of those exhaust ports where you push into it and the whole thing ultimately collapses. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is saying, oh, you learned men in all your bright and intelligence ways, uh, guess what? Your own, uh, even in your own religious experience, you say that there's a God that you do not know. So, you openly acknowledge that you do not know this God. You have a monument dedicated to the fact that you do not know God. A monu- and really, what is that? A, d- a monument dedicated to their ignorance. You know, something uh, amazing is uh, some, something I always find funny are, are those who will call themselves agnostic. And what does it mean to be agnostic? Oh, I don't know, right? Uh, I, I'm an agnostic, I don't know whether God exists or not. Oh, so, so you're ignorant on that fact, are you? Well, uh, help me, uh, let me come in and help you in your ignorance. And usually what they mean by agnostic is, I don't know, but I know what you're trying to sell me ain't it, right? Uh, that's usually what they'll try to say. It's just another form of this rebellion. But what's the Apostle Paul do? He says, that which you worship in your ignorance this unknown God, I'm here to proclaim him to you, and this is who he is. And we'll be able to get into that next week, all what the Apostle Paul says, but uh, what he really does is he shows the superiority of God, the fact that God exists, something that they all know, uh, something that uh, we know from the book of Romans that everyone knows. Uh, But the Apostle Paul is willing to take what the Bible teaches about God, take what common grace tells us about God, and he's willing to go before these people, these uh, people that many of us may be intimidated by for their tremendous wealth of intelligence. And he's willing to say, Actually, this is how the world works. And this is the result of it. God has revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made testimony to the fact by raising him from the dead. And he is now calling on you to repent. What Paul is coming and peddling is not just another competing philosophy. This is not just another competing religion that we are proclaiming, that we are practicing. What we are doing is we are following the king of the universe. Uh, Oftentimes, someone made this point, and I thought it was interesting. We treat Christianity as if Jesus is a political candidate, right? Like, we need to go around, and we need to get support for Jesus, and and we need to get enough people to to vote for Jesus, and maybe, just maybe, if Jesus gets enough support, maybe then uh, things will begin to change, well, the reality is, Jesus didn't come as political candidate. Jesus came as king. What is Paul operating under? The fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And that Jesus is now calling, commanding all men everywhere, not just those who are open to it, and not just those who acknowledge the one true God, uh, but all men everywhere to repent. And that is the message that we need to bring to the world too. And it's one that we need to bring to the world fearlessly. We have a king who is alive. He's alive today. He is enthroned in heaven. This world belongs to him. And we, as his people, have been given that tremendous job of proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the fact that victory over death has been achieved, the fact that eternal life is found in Jesus, the fact that he is king, that he will return and that we need to be in him. So, uh, just in conclusion, uh, when we look at the world today, at the sin, at the idolatry, at the wickedness, uh, what is our response to it? What's going on in here? Because, again, like I said, speaking for myself, it's so easy to become indifferent to it, right? It's easy to become numbed to it. God's name being blasphemed all over the place. uh, Sin being... uh, you know, openly paraded and enshrined into our laws, all of these things that are taking place. And uh, we can become very indifferent to it. Are we going to be indifferent or are we going to be willing to say, hey, that's not what the king said. In fact, you are an open rebellion against your king, your creator, your maker. Are we going to be vexed? in a godly way, the way that Paul was? Are we going to be provoked in the way that God is provoked when he sees this sin? Do we have the heart of God or have we become more in in line with the culture that is provoking him? Are we going to have this response? And as a result of that, take steps, take tangible action steps to bring this gospel to the world. Here's another uh, question that we can uh, ponder. When we Engage with the unbelieving world. What stance do we do it from? Do we do do it from a point of neutrality where we basically insert ourselves as one more option, right? Or or, or, are we just saying, "Oh, just give Jesus a shot," you know, just give him a try, and and maybe just he might not be for you, but maybe he will be for you. Is that that's usually how we can approach the world, isn't it? Or are we approaching it uh, from Uh, uh, the point of authority that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us. Because guess what? When Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, he meant it. And that's as true today as it was back then. And his gospel is as true today as it was back then. And our duty to proclaim it is as true today as it was back then. And are we willing to assert the truth of what scripture teaches, even when we uh, aren't so sure on what the results are going to be? Here's usually what happens with me. Usually I will be afraid to say what the scriptures say in a a given situation because uh, that person doesn't believe the scriptures. That person's just going to laugh. They'll just think it's silly. Well, the Apostle Paul was willing to be ridiculed, that seed picker, right? Uh, Why are we so afraid of the response of the world? God's already told us what the wor- how the world is going to respond. Uh, are we so, do we lack the confidence and the power of the gospel that we aren't going to use the means of spreading that gospel, which is his word? Uh, so just challenging thoughts for us, challenging thoughts for me in light of what we read here, but I look forward to uh, finishing up uh, this passage ne- next time I'm up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for What we see in the Apostle Paul, the the great godly example that he is for us, the courage that he had to be unapologetic about who you are, about what you teach and what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to have that courage. Help us to realize that uh, it is not us who are insane, but the world is insane. Uh, The world is suffering from tremendous insanity in their sin. Help us to recognize that. Help us to not feel as if we are the crazy ones and and recognize that those who reject the God who made them are. And help us have the courage to bring them the good news that they need to hear. Help us to proclaim who Jesus is, what he has done, and our responsibility to him. Give us courage this week. Bless the rest of our week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.